Welcome back to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are we doing today? Yeah, great. I just flew in from Texas this uh, morning. <laughs> yeah, Derek legit I'm just here. got off the plane. <laughs> and yes. uh, today is the last day of Hanukkah. It ends tonight at sundown, and we'll be talking about that. Yeah, we will. Um, but yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Derek is here. <laughs> Tired, but here. Also the fourth day of Kwanzaa, so there's that still a little conflicted about how to celebrate that holiday but fourth day kwanzaa for those of y'all who do all two of you i think that currently listen to the show but whatever <laughs> is what it is um let's see what we got here okay so let's just go ahead and jump right into the news for this week it is um and there's no light way to really say it but There was basically an attack on Jewish New Yorkers almost every day last week. And uh, police are investigating all of them as possible hate crimes. So last Monday, there was a 65-year-old man that was like punched and kicked near Manhattan. And Tuesday, there was a guy that had anti-Semitic slurs hurled at him back in Brooklyn. And, And this actually happened twice, actually, to two separate men. Wednesday, a 40-year-old man dressed in traditional religious clothing walking home was approached by an individual who blocked his path, and uh, apparently the individual punched the guy in the face when he tried to let him pass. On Thursday, a woman was charged with assault as a hate crime after she allegedly attacked a 34-year-old Jewish woman in front of her child. Friday, a woman was arrested and charged with harassment as a hate crime after she allegedly slapped three women in the head and face on saturday five people were injured when a man walked into a rabbi's home in new york city to um you know stab them suspect was apprehended and we just got news a couple like within the last hour that the guy's getting charged um so yeah that's that's just last week we experienced all this anti-semitism Almost every day last week. It's, it's crazy, man. Was did anything else happen last week that I missed, Derek? Yeah, I, um, I think that's. I don't know all the details of all the incidents, but I definitely know that there is a a problem here. Yeah, and it's it's difficult because. I think I was telling you this before. If if these incidents were done by a white dude with a MAGA hat, we would know how to talk about them. But when when these incidents are perpetrated by black men who live in the community very close to the Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, like how do we talk about that in a way that doesn't tap into the racism around like, ooh, let's escalate the police or let's, you know... Yeah, how do we... It's difficult to talk about those things. Yeah, definitely. I definitely don't know how to... I definitely don't know how to talk about this at all, but... And I think the the important thing is to really call out anti-Semitism, name it for what it is, um, and have that be clear, but then don't let that get weaponized into either... Because anti-Semitism... There's anti-Semitism on all sides in all populations, Mm -hmm. right? This isn't an issue that we can all point fingers to one side. So it's very easy to just uh, selectively pick out when anti-Semitism will score you points by calling it out. Uh, we should clarify real quick, Derek, that yeah. uh, you're you're having this discussion about not invoking white supremacy and calling out anti-Semitism because the perpetrator of the this crime on Saturday was a black man, right? Right, we need right, we need to name it, but we also need to not let the let our calling out of anti-Semitism be weaponized against the black community. Mm-hmm. Um or one one Jewish uh poster on Facebook had this really important point of like we who are white Jews shouldn't re- you know when we when we are attacked in our most vulnerable place this person said we shouldn't retreat and use our most powerful things as as a weapon. So in many cases, white Jews, when faced with anti-Semitism, will double down on their whiteness and say, well, we need more police pr- 
protection. We need more of this. We need more. And to re resist that is, is an important thing in this case. And the other thing is to realize that part of Satan's plan from the very beginning was to turn people against each other and to use this divide and conquer thing and to take oppressed peoples and pit them and against each other and pit them against each other. This is, you know, Satan tried to pit Adam and Eve against each other, tried to and succeeded in pitting Cain and Abel against each other when they could have been on the same team. Right. I think. And, and also anti-Semitism. It's, it's just a it's just difficult to talk about because there's there's it infiltrates so many places including the left in our country but it has to be named and it can't be used only strategically for your own purposes but we actually have to really figure out well what really keeps our Jewish siblings safe and uh, and and promote those things I would simply add a witness to the fact that this is a common design of Satan to divide and conquer among the people who should be on the same team showing us that we you know don't have as much in common as we actually do in order to divide us and this is a common theme in why oppressors commonly get one in over the people being oppressed apartheid for example is exactly how that design worked it was basically 20 percent 20 percent of that country who was white folks clearly outnumbered convinced a whole nation of different tribes of african brothers and sisters that they were different from each other convincing the closest that they were significantly different from the zulus and the sutus and the Tswanas. like it was a whole mess like even though their interest was impressing was oppressing all the black folks down there they just convinced a whole group of black folks that they were different from each other and that those differences were significant to the point where um, blacks in South Africa, at least, are still facing significant oppression because they've been conditioned to look at each other as others. Yeah, and I there's probably this uh, sense on uh, in our community of like, well, what do we do? Like, what can we do? And probably one of the most important things we can actually do is rigorously interrogate our own tradition and root out anything anti-Semitic in it. Hmm. I feel because like we've been saying that for a while, but like people are going to have a very difficult time interrogating their own tradition because that tradition is part of their identity, is it not? Well, that's... And if that tradition is part of their identity, they're going to have a very hard time you know, challenging it. I feel like a lot of people entrench themselves in mm. their tradition and in their ideology because... Right. If it turns out to be wrong, then that means there's fundamentally something wrong with who they are. It's why a lot of people don't change, is it not? Yes, but that's the whole point of mortality is to have some moments that stretch us. Mm -hmm. Or else we will never become celestial adults. We will never become mature creatures of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things we can do is look at things like what we call supersessionism, that the idea that Christianity supersedes or replaces Judaism and that Judaism is now expired. And, and that's not at all the message of the New Testament or the Book of Mormon. But people use them that way. And there are actually supersessionistic texts within the New Testament. But we have to not let them... Uh, for example, we will very frequently hear, even in the Latter-day Saint tradition people talking about oh well that's just the law of Moses and that's out of date or that doesn't apply or you know the Jews were legalistic and and Jesus fixed that and or that they went astray and God were apostate and Jesus had to come and fix you know all these other things we hear and that is directly and indirectly connected with um, actual anti-Semitic anti-Semitic attacks because people will go in in this culture that that says oh Jews are somehow inferior or less than or not to be respected or not to be trusted or that actually is the environment that we're swimming in and we can make a change in that environment by fixing how we read the scriptures 
how we talk about them, how we talk about our Jewish neighbors and our siblings, how, you know, missionary work. Let's talk about missionary work, like going up to Jews and telling them they're wrong and telling them we've got something better is really not okay. If you think about it in the, in the, in the 2000 year history of um, Christian oppression of Jews. Now, I think there's ways of being open to all people who on their own initiative seek us out and, and ask, but to just go up with no uh, no invitation to people who are solidly in their own religious tradition is not something that we're, we're about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's the way that we should be doing our missionary work. I see. There's something inherently, uh, I don't know, colonistic about missionary work or at least the way that we viewed it in the last however long we've been doing this right uh whether you know it's within the lds tradition or just the general christian tradition this idea that christianity is supposed to supersede supersede every religious tradition because we understand it to be right is not entirely uh i don't know we we haven't really fleshed out the proper way to really share the gospel of jesus christ with folks in a way that uplifts and enriches everybody. What we say as members of the church, and I believe this is true, mm -hmm. is that we like to see if we can add to the truths that people already have in right, their lives. Right. And that's the way missionary work should go. But this idea that we have something that is better or something that mm -hmm. is more complete or something that is, um, I don't know, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. The, th this idea that what other people have is flawed or wrong, um, that is something that we should abandon as soon as we can because that mm -hmm. that takes the, that takes some responsibility off of us as members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints to continue to search for truth we're supposed to value truth wherever we find it and wherever it can be found we say that truth is valuable wherever the source whatever the source is but uh, if we are so dogmatic in our own views to the point where we can't ourselves see the beauty of you know other faiths or the beauty of truth in other places right. other than our own, you know, meeting houses, then we do ourselves a great disservice and we do others a great disservice. Right. And, and practically that looks like speaking up when someone says something about the Pharisees in, in gospel doctrine or in elders quorum or in relief society. Like we need to say something. We need to interrupt this idea of Christian superiority mm -hmm. over our Jewish siblings mm -hmm. whenever we hear it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking just now as you said that that time I think it was uh, Pete Buttigieg yep. when he made that okay yep. it was Buttigieg it was Buttigieg <laughs> yeah um, like it's great that we have a Christian who is you know running for president and all that stuff but we do have to be careful to avoid gaffes like the one he had and I'm glad that he did you know apologize for right. that that is uh, that, that definitely needs to be named as well um, so yeah thanks for bringing that up Derek uh, anything else before we uh, move to uh, other news items or into the call? Come follow me. Uh, no. Okay, cool. Do we have other news? Because this is all I, I, don't, I don't think I have other news. Okay, because like basically these anti-Semitic attacks have dominated my feed for the last week or so. Um, so I don't have anything else either. So with that, we will go ahead and move on to Come Follow Me. But before we do, we just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at DialogueJournal.com podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, it is a new year. Um, I mean, not quite, but we are starting to do the curriculum for the new year, which is going to be the Book of Mormon. Yay! I Yay! Need some, I and know. the book is better than the musical. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Derek. Uh, so yeah, we are doing. We are going to be focusing the rest. We are going to be focusing the entire year of 2020 on the sacred text that is the Book of Mormon, and we are super excited to go over that because. You know, it's the Book of Mormon. It's the keystone of our religion. And we're going to talk about that uh, quite a bit today because the actual first lesson 
in uh, the Come Follow Me for the year is actually focused on the introductory and title pages of the Book of Mormon. So we're not even going to get started directly into the sacred text. We are actually going to focus on those pages. And in so doing, also hope to uh, give a little bit more of an introduction to the Book of Mormon as a sacred text and how we plan on uh, reading it this year. So uh, that'll... That'll be fun. And if you are not as familiar with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Book of Mormon, this is probably going to be a great episode for you guys because this is probably going to be the only introduction to the Book of Mormon we actually provide throughout the entire show. So uh, get ready. We are going to address the Book of Mormon. And with that, we will start with the title page and the introductory pages. Is there anything you want to start with, Derek, before we move on? No, I want to hear you first. Okay, so all I want to do is just talk briefly about, um, I, I, I suppose, some promises or at least some words that are put on the introductory pages and the title page as far as what the purpose of book, the Book of Mormon is. We should probably preface this by talking a little bit about what the Book of Mormon is and where it comes from. Um, so for those of you less familiar with uh, Mormonism, the Book of Mormon is a sacred record, and you can find this in the uh, title page and the introductory pages. It is a record of a people in the Americas, basically, where, where the Bible is a um, sacred record that, that uh, chronicles God's dealings with the people in the, uh, in the Middle East and you know parts of Africa. The Book of Mormon is a sacred record that details God's dealings with the people in the Western Hemisphere of the world. And, uh, yeah, it says that much in the, let's see, the introductory page. Yeah, the introduction page of the Book of Mormon. And uh, you'll also find out how it came forth in the introduction, about how it was engraven on golden plates, how Joseph Smith uncovered it, and how it was eventually translated by the gift and power of God and published and now we have it as an additional testament of Jesus Christ. But the things I wanted to focus on with regard to the title page and introduction of the Book of Mormon is something that is said in the first paragraph of the introduction, first, of, first off, and that it says, The Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. So that kind of begs the question, how exactly is the Book of Mormon comparable to the Bible? And you'll find the answer in the uh, third paragraph of the introduction to the Book of Mormon, which says, It puts forth the doctrines of the gospel, outlines the plan of salvation, and tells men what they must do to gain peace in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. We also see a purpose of that, or another way that uh, the Book of Mormon is comparable to the Bible, in the title page of the Book of Mormon. I believe it's the second or third to last paragraph where it says, to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. So in this regard, because it tells it, because it gives us the doctrine, talks about the plan of salvation, and testifies of Jesus Christ, this is how it is comparable uh, to the Bible. And I thought it'd be fun to briefly discuss, I don't know, each one of these points in turn. But is there anything you want to add before we go on, Derek? No, let's go on, and then I'll jump in if I need to. All right, so most important thing, put on the title page. The Book of Mormon, one purpose of the Book of Mormon is convincing the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. Now, a common criticism I feel like Mormons get is that we're not really Christians or that the Book of Mormon testifies of another Jesus somehow. And I think it is, uh, it's worth mentioning that that is not the case at all. We simply have another testament of Jesus Christ given to folks. And I think that if you know, you're a Christian listening to this or a Christian who reads the Bible, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say no to a question that would ask, what would you do if God were to give you more of his word? Would you, would you read it? Like, I don't think any Christian would say no to that. I think we would all want more of Christ's word if we are, in fact, seekers of truth and Christians. It makes sense that we would want to know more of Christ's word. And we'll get more into how you can actually know that the Book of Mormon is Christ's word later when we actually read these last two paragraphs of the introduction. But that is probably the purpose and the way that the Book of Mormon is comparable to the Bible that is most important to me is the fact that it testifies of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to interrupt you right there and talk about something because this gets uh, into a really interesting point with our 
um, you know, Protestant and Catholic friends who think that the scriptures are closed and the Bible is, is finalized. And here's, I'm not really a debater, but if I were, here's one question I would ask them. It's actually kind of a trick question. I would ask them, okay, so you think the Bible was closed and that God was giving people scriptures throughout the period that the New Testament was written, and then at some point that faucet got shut off. What year was that? Like what year after which is it wrong to add things to the Bible? Because obviously it wasn't wrong to add things to the Bible when the New Testament was written and they were actually adding things to the Bible and they say you can't add things to the Bible. And they'll say things like, well, Jesus came and, and that's our final revelation and we don't need any more. But all the New Testament was written after Jesus' death and resurrection. So mm -hmm. clearly that's not the cutoff point. Right. And you can't put the cutoff point anytime in the first century because we've still got texts in the New Testament being written. And you can't really, there, there's no, they will not have a good answer. And you can't even say, like, after the last text was written, which could have been maybe Revelation or Second Peter or one of these things at the very end of the first century or maybe the beginning of the second, because at that point there was no—the uh, New Testament wasn't compiled. All of these documents were circulating independently from each other. Like, you had collections of the Gospels. You had collections of some of the Paul's letters. But it wasn't bound into one book. Mm-hmm. And it, you had no canonized list of what was actually in the New Testament until the year 367. Mm -hmm. That's when uh, St. Athanasius, in his festal letter, actually wrote out the 27 books of the New Testament. He was the first person to put these 27 books in a list and say, that's what's our canonical New Testament. That's in the middle of the 4th century. Mm -hmm. Before then, people had other different combinations of books they were using. So here's my question is, there was no like New Testament published in the first century that you could like that's the date like there is no date that they can pick right that that says beyond this date it's wrong to add stuff to the to the New Testament because people were still adding and subtracting whole books from the New Testament up until the fourth century right uh, and different communities had different canon lists of what they accepted and what they didn't accept and so I'm like there's n they have no they if they if they insist that you can't add to the New Testament, they've got to have a cutoff because obviously they were adding to the New Testament when it was written and then yeah th there needs to be what year like what happened in that year why did it all of a sudden go from yay it's okay to add new scriptures to now it's no like that doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. uh, which if they can't specify what year that was then that shows that there's room for ongoing revelation and God is always wanting to shower us with more wisdom and more timely and relevant scriptures. Right. And, and the Book of Mormon proves that God doesn't want to leave a whole continent without the love of his word, uh -huh. right? There's this universalizing and uh, e expanding circle that you get within our, our tradition that you have some groups that are in, but then this circle gets ever wider and expanding more and more, including in our tradition, expanding to those who, who die without the gospel. There's a way of including them, too. Right. And I think that's just very beautiful. Mm. So that feeds well into this uh, next point that is worth mentioning when it comes to the purpose of the Book of Mormon, uh, which is that it puts forth the doctrines of the gospel. Now, Something that's a big deal to me in terms of the significance of the Book of Mormon being, you know, accessible now to everybody is the fact that um, there are hundreds of Christian denominations, so many different Christian faiths. And the reason they exist is because we all have a different idea of what exactly Jesus Christ taught or what's written in the Bible or what exactly God intends for his children, just a variety of different things that we believe when it comes to God's dealing with his people or what you know, God wants and expects of us or what's required to get into heaven. There's just so much that is different based on what all of us have been given in one single volume of scripture. So what we have in the Book of Mormon, which is what I believe is the most important, one of the most important functions it can fill as another witness of Jesus Christ, is that we have another perspective 
on what exactly it is that Christ has taught, what exactly is required for us to get into heaven, what is required for us to be good people, what is required for us to have peace in this life and eternal life in the life to come. So we have another perspective, and you know, this is powerful because we see how valuable it was having the four gospels, you know what I'm saying, having Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as uh, you know, records of the life of Christ. But now we have an entire new book of scripture that just gives us a new perspective and helps us further narrow down what exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ is, which is invaluable as Christians in bringing us to into a unity of the faith, as is written in the book of Ephesians. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. All right, cool. Because um, that is important. I feel like as Christians, we're all striving for the same goal. Most of us are anyway. And we are using the Bible as best we can in striving for that same goal. But... I've said it many times on the show before, the work of Christianity is interdependent and the work of Christianity is best done in unity with other saints. And I feel like part of the job of the Book of Mormon is bringing us into that unity. Like the Book of Mormon is in effect gathering Israel in its own way. It's helping Christians become more unified in terms of what exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ is, how we live in community with each other, how we have peace and how we, you know, follow the gospel of Jesus Christ in the best way we can. It gives us another tool. The Book of Mormon is another tool to that end. And again, I don't know why we as Christians wouldn't want that. Right. And I want to talk about a little bit of the sort of 19th century context because there's some scholars out there that they're going to want to dig into, you know, the ancient American context. Uh, But the challenge is we don't have the right contextual sources to give cultural and historical background to the text of the of the Book of Mormon in the time that they were written. What we have is the new the nineteenth century context, and here we've got the se- the Second Great Awakening. We've got this I- extremely revivalistic spirit going on, and in many ways, the Book of Mormon was written to the latter days. Right? It wasn't written for the people in their time. It was written for us, and I think for for me for the year, what I, that's kind of what I'm going to focus on is how looking at 19th century sources can can help us understand the text of the Book of Mormon because what what we've got to realize is that when Joseph Smith was translating, he was translating it into the religious idiom of the day, and if we want to know what something means and would have meant to to the original readers of the Book of Mormon in 1830, we can look and see, well, what were other Christians using this language to mean? And I think that can end up clarifying some things. Uh, and what we really see is, I think I already said this, is that the Book of Mormon is really revival literature. It's When you read it, it inspires you to get your life together, to repent, to have a vibrant and passionate faith in Jesus Christ, that's really what it is. It's not, and our our brother, our church leaders have talked about this. That it's not a tourist guide to the ancient Americas. It doesn't right. give you those things, and so that's not what I'm focused on. And the title page tells you what it's to do. It's to promote faith in Christ, right? And um, faith and repentance. And I I think that it really does well. I think it's also worth mentioning the timing of the Book of Mormon. You talked about earlier in your comments about how the Book of Mormon was written to us, like it was written for our day, you know, and it's important that we read it in that context. As we read through uh, the Book of Mormon, we're going to see little glimmers and hints or direct um direct statements that indicate that the Book of Mormon is written with our particular with our generations in mind, with the nineteenth century onward. They see the Book of Mormon Prophets, that is. They see our day. And that gets into how reading the Book of Mormon is, is slightly different than reading the Bible because mm-hmm. with the Bible, we've got a wealth of contemporary documents from the time and artifacts and archaeology to help us narrow in, like, well, what did this mean and how would this have been received and how would the original hearers have understood this and what's going on in the history and cultural background. And... And, but in many ways, the Book of Mormon is a different genre completely. The The Bible is 
the traditional literature of a people. These are the, the texts that they preserved and shared and read and created for themselves. And, and we're looking over their shoulder. Whereas the Book of Mormon is really, a lot of it is, is almost like someone's journal. Like I'm recording what I went through and what this meant to me. Mm-hmm. Which means we don't need to have the same, it, we're not reading it for the same purposes or needing the same historical and cultural background, although I would like more of that. Right. But you don't need to read it the same way you would the Bible. Mm-hmm. I think if you read it with an eye towards how does this help me repent, how does this convict me of sin, how does this di- redirect me to the Savior, that's kind of, you can read it very fruitfully that way. Definitely. And I think that's uh, a little bit of a shift from sort of my background as a biblical scholar, reading it in a, in a different way, looking at, well, where, where's the narrative taking us? Oh, and that reminds me, the narrative arc of the Book of Mormon is actually a tragedy. It okay. starts out with hope and promise, and it ends in, in devastation and genocide. Oops, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Whoopsie. Mm-hmm. And so so that's something that, that, need, that needs to be named, because what does that do for us as a Book of Mormon? What lessons can we learn? And I'm sure we're going to talk about this all year. But having that in the back of your mind is important um, because it's not it's not a, a success story in this in you, you know in a very Disney-fied way. Mm-hmm. It's uh, something that we can very very soberly look at and learn some lessons from. And there's some obviously high points in the Book of Definitely, Mormon, like yeah. Third Nephi with the visitation of Christ to this uh, to the New World, and the subsequent Fourth Nephi where just yeah everything is. Everything is chill for 200 years. Or yeah, something like I know. That. I know. And there's no drama. That's why fourth Nephi is so short is because everything there's was going no well. Drama. There's, no, there's, like, no there's drama. nothing there's to nothing write about. Ne- I know. We're cool. I would, I, I would love that. I would love to uh, uh, have more info about that. But That's one book covering 200 <laughs> years. 200 years yeah, because nothing is happening. And I, but I think th- th- really the a lot of... Latter-day Saints culturally really focus on the Book of Mormon, and I get why that, because Ezra Taft Benson had this major push to make it all about the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the 19th century, the primary text was the Bible for a lot of Latter-day Saints. They knew the Bible so much better. They right. they engaged the Bible in their missionary work right. so much more fruitfully. I think. But the th- where I was going with that is um, we can learn from the from the Book of Mormon certain things that can that we that a lot of things in the Book of Mormon make us want to read the Bible and a lot of things in the Bible make us want to read the Book of Mormon it's both and it's not a competition right you actually get more with both it's like the stereoscopic vision of having two eyes each Mm -hmm. one gives you a different perspective right and there are real differences and that's how you see uh, 3d right how you have depth perception is each eye gets a little bit of a different perspective and and some of the some of the tragedies in the Book of Mormon bring me back to the Bible. Um, like, what what do we do? Like, where are the answers around? Well, what happens to people um, who don't hear the gospel? Like, what what about the plan of salvation for those who are who are dead? Which I mentioned is part of this ever expanding circle of inclusion. Uh-huh. Right? People in even in the early days of the Restoration in the early 1830s, they had no idea. You know, Joseph thought his brother Alvin was lost yeah. and was surprised in, I think it was 1836, when he received a um, a vision of him in the celestial kingdom. And like, how did that happen? And I think uh, our knowledge of the that there's a plan for those who, who, who have died comes obviously from, from the Doctrine and Covenants, but also comes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, people, uh, that's another thing that we get uh, sort of dinged for from our other Christian friends is like our view of uh, the salvation for the dead. But here's my theory. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, the Apostle Paul is very clear that death has no sting. Right? Death has no sting. And I love um, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 in, in Greek is, Pusu thanate. Tonikos, pusu thanate tokentron. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In fact, the the 
the pronoun translated your is actually fronted in the clause as far forward as it can for emphasis. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Like, you don't have a stinger. That's what, and now here's the thing is, if God set up the plan of salvation that with this deadline of if you don't hear about Jesus in this life and you're not baptized in this life and through no fault of your own or whatever, if you don't get the whole thing in this life at your death, now you're roasting in hell. If that's the case, then death has a major sting. Right. And so if the Apostle Paul is correct that death has no sting, then obviously there must be a plan of salvation for those who have died. Uh-huh. Right? That it just has to be. Like if you know the character of God, the God of Paul, then it totally makes sense that there is now all of the people who died in the Book of Mormon they'll have a chance mm-hmm. right all of the all of this devastation and tragedy now i don't want to paper over these these real tragedies and, mm-hmm. and real death and suffering but that's not the end that's not the final story that's the whole message of jesus is it's not the final story right. there is right. there is room for even the restoration and the resurrection of the dead which is the whole point of first corinthians 15 and it's not a coincidence that that's where Paul introduce, introduces in the 29th verse uh, the salvation uh, of the baptism of the dead. He mm-hmm. says, else then what shall they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? I mean, like, here we've got something in the Book of Mormon that drives us to read the Bible and something in the Bible that drives us to read the Book of Mormon, and I really love that. And it's not just my little excuse of now I <laughs> have a, a little cheating way of getting to talk about the Bible, mm-hmm. but that's kind of my approach. And I really think that when we talk about the Book of Mormon, when we teach in our classes, like if you're, if you're listening to this and you teach gospel doctrine and there's investigators in your class and you're teaching the Book of Mormon, I think it is very helpful to bring in the Bible, especially if the investigator is coming from a Christian background right. or is familiar with the Bible right. so that they don't think that there's, we're these weirdos, even right. though we are weirdos. <laughs> but so that they don't Fair. think that we're doing something unchristian or something replacing the Bible. I right. think that's a big misconception that I really uh, – and Joseph never even used this to, re- to replace the Bible. He, right. he taught his sermons uh, – his sermons, as far as I know, almost all of them were from the Bible. Uh-huh. There, I don't know of any – where he has some extended, he does now comment in different places, but I can't think of any sermons where he actually takes a text from the Book of Mormon, and that's his major theme. It's mm. a good point. It's a good point. It does. It does. Uh, it is worth mentioning that uh, part of the focus on uh, the Book of Mormon that we have, or that we tend to give to the Book of Mormon, is due to uh, something that's commonly said about the Book of Mormon's role in our faith, and that it is the keystone of our religion. But kind of in my heart, I think of this keystone, the the Book of Mormon being the keystone of our religion, sort of developmentally rather than uh, sort of philosophically. That is, the the Book of Mormon is people's introduction into the faith. Whether Mm -hmm. you're a convert or whether you are raised in the church, it is a primary way of solidifying your connection to this faith. It is sort of this entryway. Mm-hmm. It is the uh, the funnel through which all this stuff goes. But I don't think it's the foundation in the sense of, you know, it doesn't take the rep- place of the Bible. Right. I think right. in another sense, the Bible is also a keystone. And even uh-huh. more important is the ongoing revelation to a living prophet, which in some sense is even more foundational to to the whole technolo- technology of our church. The whole way, uh-huh. the engine, the way our church runs is based on living uh, revelation. You know, kind of like we have Peter's confession in Matthew 16. And here I am using this as a as just an excuse to talk about the Bible. But Peter proclaims, you know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but your father in heaven revealed this to you. And on this rock will I build my church. And I think that's the rock of revelation. Right. And I think that, in a sense, is another keystone. So I I, I don't want to, to, to make it sound like everything stands or falls on the Book of Mormon. And that's why I'm, I think it is, it's like developmentally 
a keystone in the you know in the in the spiritual life of a person right. rather than like logically a keystone. Does that make sense? I think so. I think because so. Because we've got other supports like there are other supports like there are like the book of mormon is not alone in that sense at all like the way i was going to talk about the book of mormon as the keystone of our religion is this is often when we talk about uh, the veracity of the church as an institution or the you know of anything else that the book of mormon considering where it comes in the role of the restoration in that regard it is the keystone right it's the foundation of people's Testimonies, right? And yeah. I want to be careful how I use that, uh, how I use that word foundation or keystone, because they serve very different functions in any structure. But what uh, what the Book of Mormon does is it, uh, it it allows us to make the certain claims, like like what the book the role the Book of Mormon plays in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is it buttresses everything just about everything we claim in the church, including our uh, claim to modern-day revelation and priesthood authority, because if the Book of Mormon is, in fact, the Word of God, if it was, if it is, in fact, true, that means it was translated by Joseph Smith by the gift and power of God. It means he was a prophet, and it means that the church has been restored. That is a common thing that we say in the church. In that regard, it is the keystone of our religion, because you can know so much just on knowing the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. It does, and what I'm about to say, I don't know if it's a disagreement with you or not, so you're going to have to tell me what you think of what what I'm about to say. But some people in the church culturally have this domino theory of of truth. Uh That is, certain propositions are set up like dominoes, and if one is true, then the next is true. And they'll say, like, well, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith is a prophet. And then if Joseph Smith is a prophet, then the church is true. If the church is true, then the living prophet is a, a true prophet. And if that's true, then this latest decision or policy or whatever or whatever is true. I would have true. to be careful with that because that is so not what I'm saying. That's not oh good. That's not what you're saying. Like, I would, I'd ag- I would agree with that to a certain point, but I think some people would wrongly assume that because the Book of Mormon is true that whatever policy that comes from the top down is from God. I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, I, I'm not saying like, that's what you're saying, but I think there's a lot of people in our missionary work that that make it, they, they oversimplify it. They make it sound it. like that. They oversimplify it. Yeah, they say, well, if... There's a place for that, but not to that extent, yeah. not for saints like us, because we don't have that luxury. Again, you're gay, I'm black. We can't rightfully assume that because the Book of Mormon is true that those things that were said about me pre-1978 were true right. or that those things that are said about you currently are true. Like, the buck has to stop somewhere. And I think the problem, the real problem with this domino theory of truth is that it's a shortcut for doing the real work. Yeah. Because then if they say, well, if the Book of Mormon is true, then, this is, then X is true, and then Y is true, then Z is true, then I don't actually have to do any of this work. Uh-huh. But it's shortcutting people from the whole process of why we're here on this mortal world is to grow and to develop and to be right. stretched and to do some of this hard work. And and that's kind of wh- – and the other problem with this, with this domino theory of truth is that the dominoes can fall the other way. They totally can fall the other way because if you have something on the back end that's mm-hmm. a problem, like, oh, I just realized this policy is wrong or this doctrine is wrong that we thought was, was doctrine – if that falls, then the dominoes will fall all the way back to the Book of Mormon, to the Book of Mormon and then and they'll the lose their faith in Christ. Right. And I think that's what some of our, our ex-Mormon friends have done is they found a problem on the back end and it ta- tumbled all the, book, all the dominoes the other way, which I don't want to set it up as dominoes to begin with right? because it, we've got a lot of problems there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly why Moroni, when he wrote this title page, I love it. It's so brilliant where he said um, – well, let me get to where the title page is. He says, and now if there are faults, yeah, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God that ye may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. Mm-hmm. Like he totally is demolishing this, this domino theory. He says, look, if you find a flaw in something that's here, don't let that domino all of your testimony of Christ away. Mm-hmm. And also, let's keep in mind where those fla- what kind of flaws we're talking about here, because a lot of the criticisms that come of the Book of Mormon have to do with like their grammar and stuff, or the possible source material for mm-hmm. some of the things that are written in the Book of Mormon. You guys are missing the entire p- 
point of what the Book of Mormon is here to do. It's here to testify of Christ, you know? Can you, like, there's not a real flaw to be found there if you are reading the Book of Mormon the mm-hmm. way you're supposed to be, which is the primary reason I don't initially look at this domino theory as something that's bad if you look at the Book of Mormon for what it truly is, which yeah. is another witness of Christ and also a witness of the veracity of the work that uh, Joseph Smith was in fact doing. There's only so far I'm willing to take that domino theory as an actual theory because at some point that is where God disappears from the equation. You know what I'm saying? Like there comes Mm -hmm. a point in that domino theory where divine inspiration is just completely absent and uh, or possibly absent. And that is where we have to be able to look through um, to look at what the Book of Mormon is or look at what the faith is with a little more nuance. I think what you said about oversimplifying, you know, the domino oversimplifying what the Book of Mormon means as a whole domino theory I think there's definitely merit to that because there's a great temptation to view everything that happens in the church as something that should happen with divine inspiration or intervention, and that's just not the case. Right, and that's exactly why I talked about not taking this shortcut and actually doing the hard work of gaining a testimony of each, well, what bullet would be a domino, right? But just don't put them together so that they all fall down together. And, and, and like... Like Marone, I said in the title page, there could, there are mistakes. I mean, they were writing from a limited perspective. You've got the Nephites side of the story. You don't have the Lamanites side of the story. Right. You've got the men's side of the story. You don't have, we don't have the voices of women. We don't have any women's authorship in the Book of Mormon. Right. Um, we don't have that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um so there's there's all these issues of here of asking well whose voices are there who benefits from those voices and right. whose n- stories are not there and uh, and also with with militarism there's a problem with militarism in the book of mormon um where the nephites try to solve things with uh, with military force and i'm like well yeah there's there's a lot of warfare in the book of mormon but the lesson we learn is that the war never delivers what it promises it promises peace but it never works even at the end war doesn't save the nephites Mm -hmm. the only thing that ended up bringing peace was the arrival of christ and and people actually seeing each other as real people and having a kinship that transcends their divisions Mm -hmm. and i think that's the way that's the way the book of mormon succeeds in this one direction where there are no Ites, mm-hmm. where um, all are alike unto God, and and the best parts of the Book of Mormon can help us sort of counteract some of the the problematic parts of the Book of Mormon. Mm. That'll be that'll be an interesting conversation as well. The quote unquote problematic parts of the Book of Mormon. All right, I think you already went over a couple of the other things I wanted to go over with regard to the title page. The other sentence I did want to talk about was this whole idea of faults. In the Book of Mormon, we talked about uh, the plan of salvation here, and we talked about what the Book of Mormon is going to bring in this life and in the life to come. So, is there anything else you want to bring up? With I, I think it might bear. Uh, I think it might be good to mention the last two paragraphs of the introductory page. Okay, let's go back to that. Let me just pull that up real quick here. And while you're doing that, I want to sort of mentioned the Maxwell Study Institute, uh, their study edition uh, of the Book of Mormon, edited by Grant Hardy. It's really cool. It it puts it in paragraphs. You've got quotation marks. You've got uh, headings. It helps you really figure out what's going on, the flow of the argument or the flow of the narrative. One thing that they've done is, in addition to having the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, they also have the testimony of the prophet, Joseph Smith, like in the standard church-published Book of Mormon. Uh But they also have the testimony of Emma Smith here. And from an interview uh, where she talks about, you know, her experience with the plates. And she didn't actually see them, but she felt them through the cloth. She... um, uh, testifies about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. I think it's really cool to put Emma Smith's voice in there at the beginning with the others. Mm, that's really cool. Who and you said this was uh, uh the name of the the name of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, 
Maxwell Institute Study Edition. Yes. Edited by Grant Hardy. Okay. Okay, so these are the last two paragraphs of the uh, Book of Mo- of the Book of Mormon introduction, which basically amounts to Moroni's promise, if you're familiar with that already. But what it says here, we invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. And in this last paragraph, we're going to see some of this dominoing that we talked about earlier. Last paragraph, those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again, established on the earth preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. So I suppose the only thing I want to point out here is the implication of knowing that the Book of Mormon is true. We are going to have a couple of people listening to this who are not uh, members of our faith, but we do need you to understand what it means if the Book of Mormon is true, and you basically find out in this last, uh, this last paragraph of the introduction of the Book of Mormon. Knowing that this is true, first you get the invitation, the invitation to read, to ponder the message of the Book of Mormon, and then to pray about it, um, you know, pray about it to God. And then in the last paragraph, we learn what the implications of that truth are which is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom restored, that Jesus is the Christ, and um, that uh, Joseph Smith uh, was the prophet through whom the church has been restored. So uh, that is just something I wanted to mention there briefly, is that this is as far as I'm willing to take the domino effect when it comes to uh, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. I'm not going to be somebody, like uh, Derek says, who is going to say that the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon means that everything that happens at the top of church leadership is going to be is going to have God's stamp of approval. But I am going to say that accepting the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, you have to be also willing to accept what that means, which is in this case, most importantly, the fact that Jesus is the Christ and that through him, or sorry, that th- Jesus Christ used Joseph Smith to restore uh, his church on this earth. Yeah, and and just to back that up with with just one example from the Bible, almost every page of the Bible is filled with God leading the people and them getting stuff wrong. Yeah. Just because God is leading a people doesn't mean that they all get it right. That's one of our time. first stories. Yeah. Like, that, that is the first story of the Bible. <laughs> God literally walking by folks and them still doing contrary <laughs> to his will. That's the first story. And, and, and one example of this is the, the golden calf incident, right? Because you've got, you've, you've got Moses going up the mountain, so he's out of the picture, and Aaron was left as the, what we would call now the, the most senior priesthood leader on earth. And he leads the people in sacrificing, uh, I mean, in building an idol and worshiping it. I'm like, he, Moses wasn't even gone 40 days. Like, what are you doing here? Just because God is leading a people doesn't mean that they're not going to be stubborn, that they're not going to be backwards, that they're not going to be, you know, hard-hearted, that they're not going to be open to change, that they're not going to be, you know, imp- impatient and all these other things. You're, you're going to have problems. That's mm-hmm. that's the whole point of mortality is God leading us with our own agency and giving us room to make some mistakes. Big time. And we've made some mistakes in the mm-hmm. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints yes, from, from the top to the bottom, right? Yeah. And early on in the Book of Mormon, we are going to learn how to properly, you know, properly deal with those instances where our leaders are doing things that we don't necessarily agree with or things that are just straight up wrong. One of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon is actually found uh, early on in the first book of Nephi, chapter 17, where Nephi breaks his bow and even Mm -hmm. even Lehi murmurs. You know, I don't want to give too much away um, because that is a that is one of my favorite stories and I can't wait to talk about it at length. Mm -hmm. But um Basically, we learn that uh, even when our leaders are wrong, we can still we can still make proper decisions, we and, can we can still, and we can with, take without initiative without waiting for them to tell us the right thing. That is actually a, that is actually a word used in the um, in the footnotes describing Nephi's particular response to uh, to Lehi's little slip up, and uh, you'll notice that even when Lehi is messed up, and even when Nephi uh, does differently than what Lehi is doing, 
you'll notice that Lehi, or sorry, that Nephi still defers to Lehi, that he still sustains his father, even when his father is not necessarily walking in the proper way. So like that, that'll be a fun thing to go over. And this is just all to say that uh, there are instances of people or sorry, instances of leaders leading the people astray, them following that leader and themselves going astray. And also instances of leaders falling out of the right way, but the people under them still acting appropriately in a way that in essence saves everybody else that's around. So um, can't, can't wait to have those discussions. They are going to be exciting and they are going to be like, there's so much in the book of Mormon that we can learn about how to respond to leadership, how to respond to hardship Mm -hmm. um, more of, and this is one of my favorite things in the Bible, but more of God tying his, um, his covenants with his people directly to their oppression. The Book of Mormon, like the Bible, is a record of a lot of oppressed peoples. Mm-hmm. We are going to get into that and certainly learn more of uh, how to respond to oppression and marginalization from the Book of Mormon. It, it's just going to be, like, I, I seriously can't wait. I love the Book of Mormon so much because, you know, I, I was obviously raised with it, but it's just more of that word of Christ and uh, more of that opportunity to read uh, from the perspective of somebody who is on the margins of society. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Uh, anything else before we move on to the prayer roll, Derek? No, that's uh, that's a great intro. So stay with us. Um, share this with others who are starting their journey of the Book of Mormon. Big time. All right, before we move on to the prayer roll, just want to also let you guys know about the Mormon News Report podcast, which covers the week in Mormon news with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brent and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on all the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. That is the Mormon News Report, acronym MNR. Okay, so Derek, who is on our prayer roll for today? Well, Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete, what did he do now? Okay, so... He was, I don't know the whole context of this, but he was apparently at some place and he was answering a question or speaking or something. And he said... How long ago was this, by oh, the way? Oh, this was just this, you know, this past week, I think. This happened last week. Yeah, this okay. happened in the past few days. Got you. Um, I don't know where it was or exactly when it was. But he said something along the lines of... The authors of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, did not know that slavery was bad. Um, why do you say that? I think what he was trying, I don't know what he was trying to do. Okay. But I think he was trying to talk about how, well, the, the Constitution is here and now we're here as a society and like how do we, like how do we progress and how do we I think he was trying to do this thing of like, well, we can we can do better than they did, right? And he was trying to excuse them, and he was, I, and in in, in a sense, I think he was actually trying to excuse them so that he could use their framework, right? He says, well, there's good things about the Constitution because it allows, it, you know, you know, that's our Constitution, and we can use it to do good things. And there, now there's a, I have a bunch of problems with his, with what he said. First of all, it's historically inaccurate. Um, because there were a number of people already in 1787 when the Constitution was written that were were abolitionists. There were a number of people who were working against it. This that was part of the compromises that ended up in the Constitution. Another problem is that if he were to be president, he would be interpreting the Constitution and enforcing it. And I think if you don't understand the Constitution, how can you take an oath to support it? Um, and a, a third problem is. Now, the, we have to recognize that part of the reason the Constitution reads the way it, it does is because Native Americans and African Americans weren't at the table. If they had been at the table when it was written, we wouldn't have had that problem, right? right? That's the first problem is we didn't have those voices there at the table, right? Because obviously um, the enslaved Africans in this country knew it was wrong. Right. And if they were at the table, it would not be that and way. And wouldn't have happened. Um, but another another thing is it is sort of sugarcoats part of the problem. Part of my research last summer was to look at um, pro-slavery literature in the South. Um, and the funny thing is that in the early stages, most people knew slavery was bad. 
um, that it was, a, but they, they justified it as a necessary evil and we're going to have to gradually get away from it. It's not good. It's, you know, it's, it's bad. And, but starting in, starting in the 1830s and 40s, after the Constitution was written, a lot of people in the South, a lot of the uh, preachers in the South started saying, actually, slavery is, oh, I hate to even say it, but they were saying that slavery is a positive good. Mm-hmm. It's not just a necessary evil, but it's something that that glorifies the South, and it actually helps black people, and it helps everyone, and everyone's in their place, and everyone's happy, and everyone's, yeah. I'm like, they had to do this precisely because of the rise of the abolitionist thinking, and they needed a response, and they and then they started saying, "Oh, it's actually a good thing." Whereas, um, and I, I, yeah. What are your reactions to all this? Gosh, um, I mean, the first thing that I thought as I, as you said that was, um, you know, the reason that they didn't invite black folks to the table was because they knew that black folks were going to be like, "No, we're not okay with slavery." And that alone lets you know that they knew there was a problem, like that the white people who drafted the Constitution, that alone should tell you they knew what was up. Whether or not they thought it was a good thing or a bad thing, they knew they were denying people their Mm -hmm. humanity. So, like, I I would have to disagree with the fundamental assumption that the writers of the Constitution didn't know that slavery was bad. But, you know, ah, there's there's just... I, I don't know, man. I don't want to be hard on somebody who is willing to admit they're wrong. And Mayor Pete has at least displayed that much. It's when he's going to start double, doubling down on his, on his ignorance that I'm going to start having a problem. Like the guy called up Michael Harriet and listened to the guy insult him for like a good hour. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I want to give credit where credit is due. I certainly want, wouldn't want to, like if I was a white person, I wouldn't want to be on the phone with Michael Harriet just listening to him roast me for a whole hour. Like, yeah, it would be comedy, but it would still hurt my feelings. You know, I wouldn't want to do that. And I, I do want to give that credit to Mayor Pete. But, you know, now that you're now that he's running for president, I I, I just want him to do better. You know, but, I want him to be careful about. But, you know, I think that that's actually one of the functions of white privilege is to say, whoops, I made a mistake, and then you get forgiven. And that is one advantage that white people have in our culture is right. we, get get to, we get to claim, oh, no, I, my heart's in the right place. I made a mistake out of ignorance. And you get second chances. Yeah. Like people of color in our, in our world don't, don't get, get second that. chances. They don't even don't get, get first that. chances. Right, right, right. Which is one of the miracles of the Obama presidency was just there were – just a couple of things that he had to be careful of, uh, the most notable being his association with his pastor who said all those things about white folks. Well, I like that pastor. Well, we like that pastor, but for Obama to like be able to win the presidency, he couldn't be associated with him. Again, this is a function of white privilege, like you said. Barack Obama had to lose association with his pastor just so he could get the nom- nomination, whereas you know, our current president just had to be rich and white, and he was able to do so many things wrong Mm -hmm. he was able to appear to mock a disabled person he was able to brag about sexually assaulting women he was able to predicate his entire presidency on xenophobia and racism and misogyny and he still won again this is a function of right white privilege and if he apologized for all of that even better like he would have had an even better shot maybe i don't know but uh you're totally right the ability that pete Buttigieg has to simply apologize and still have a strong presidency is more than likely a a uh, function of white privilege. Most black candidates would not get that luxury. And w- I'm not so I'm not so much mad at Pete for making the mis- this mistake because I can imagine myself. You know, I I've said stupid things in my life. Right. Fortunately, I haven't had a news crew around, and I'm not running for president, so no right. one knows about them. Right. right? But but the what it, what I'm mad about is not that he made this mistake. It's that he apparently hasn't done the work with the relevant communities to know. And that's not to say this. That is like, the problem. Like, uh, that's the problem. Like, that has been the story of Mayor Pete's presidency is just more and more evidence that he hasn't really done the work. And uh, that's that's really unfortunate because you would hope that somebody who is running on a platform where he em- fully embraces the marginalized identity that he has. It just sucks that, I mean, a gay white man has not has demonstrably not done the work and this is somebody who is not just anybody he is harvard educated he has had pretty much every privilege you know growing up that has ultimately led him to be in a position where he can run for president and he still can't find the time to do the work somehow like that is my primary problem with this whole thing is that you have 
the opportunity. You have the means and you are clearly going after the black vote, but you just keep demonstrating that you haven't done the work despite having everything you need at your disposal to do so. That is my problem. Yeah, that's that's my problem too. So hopefully he can can do some. And my theory is that he would probably after, you know, another after some time of doing this work, he'd probably be an amazing person in the cabinet or amazing senator or whatever, right? Once he's done this work. All right. But he's only 37. He yeah. could very well still be president in the next, yeah. I don't know, so, 16 years or so. I don't know. Yeah. And so that's kind of uh, and and there's part of me that that wishes that, like he's not my number one choice for president. Right. But there's part of me that that has this connection because he's this like overeducated white gay dude like I am. Yeah. Very much like Derek. <laughs> very much like <laughs> like Derek and part of me wants him to to like what's the word like get it right not that I want him to succeed and win the presidency but I want him to get it right because he's representing me he's representing you he's and representing he's kind of me. an embarrassment when he like and like I feel gaps. bad like because then people are gonna think oh Derek is an overeducated white who hasn't done the work of understanding <laughs> black people yeah that would be a terrible thing for people that to would think be of a you terrible Derek. people yeah I know but I, uh, but yeah, I like I want him to put. This is our first. This isn't isn't our first uh, gay uh, candidate, right? We've we had Fred Carter, um, but this is the first one that's getting major visibility. I want him to put our best foot forward, thinking yeah. you know, um, and somehow he just steps in the wrong, wrong whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, so let's pray for the best for for Mayor Pete. Hopefully, mm-hmm. that he takes this learning opportunity, bounces back, and mm-hmm. actually does the takes time to do the work among these. Uh, to take the and in some ways, as as a gay man, he should know some of what it's like to be misunderstood, to be not heard, to be marginalized, and to to not have other people do the work with him. Right, right. Right. And there should be this, in, not that, not that it's the same struggle at all, but there should be this sense of empathy that you can borrow. Right. To say, I know what it's like to, to, to have someone say something completely clueless about my people. So right. I'm going to not do that to this other group of people that I'm clueless about. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Um, any other thoughts before we make some housekeeping items? Nope, that's it. All right, cool. Derek, where can folks find us? Uh, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also like us. We are likable, not just in real life, but also on Facebook. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you can you can subscribe to us and share us with others. Yeah, definitely. Also on uh, Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. That's at BTBLDS. On Instagram, Twitter, we still don't have a TikTok or a Snapchat. We're old. We don't know how those things work. <laughs> so it's probably going to be a minute. Sorry. Yeah. Um, anything we want to ask the people to do for us, Derek? No, just think of people who may be starting their journey with the Book of Mormon either this year in uh in the curriculum or if someone's new to the book of mormon get them started with us because there's no better place to start i i really i really believe that thank you derek with that we will see you guys next week see you next week bye